Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Obi Nuusu, an entrepreneur, board member of B-Trust, and founder of Ferry. We talk about how he got started in business, why he likes starting businesses, and the adventures he's had along the way. Obi also tells us about his new venture and how he envisions Fetty fitting into the Bitcoin ecosystem. Obi Nuosu, how's everything going, man? Hey, Jim, how's it going? Really good. <laughs> That's awesome. Where in the world are you right now? I'm in sunny Lisbon, my mm. new first home. <laughs> and what made you move there? Because, you know, I think you were in England for a while, at least. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I was, I was a born and bred Londoner. So even beyond England, I was a hardcore Londoner. And I expected to spend the rest of my life there, but Brexit was coming, fast approaching, and there was an opportunity to consider getting residency in Portugal. And it had a number of benefits, not least of which at the time it had no tax on no tax on Bitcoin. And so two weeks before Brexit occurred, I decided to go over to Portugal and apply for residency, which at the time meant spending under 100 euros and about an hour waiting in the local town hall camera. Now it's much more complex. And I think that was one of the, I put it in my top three best decisions ever. And I don't know what the other two are. Uh, well, probably <laughs> one of them is, which is getting into Bitcoin. But, mm. uh, but I know it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. Hmm. Well, so you have residency in Lisbon now and due to Brexit and capital controls and stuff, but what's it like there? I think well, for a lot of people that aren't familiar, it'd be interesting. So yeah, a long time ago, I, I dated a Portuguese um, woman of Angolan descent. She always told me to, this was 20 plus years ago, always told me to go to Portugal and I just wasn't interested. But so I didn't hmm. know much about it when I arrived. But getting here, within a few weeks, I fell in love with the place. It's got incredible weather. The people, I, from my experience, I found to be really engaging and friendly and welcoming. The food is amazing. Where I am, particularly in Lisbon, within 15 minutes drive away from the longest stretch of uninterrupted white sand beach in Europe, 20 kilometers of it. And there are some parts which are busy with, uh, with restaurants and so on, other parts which are completely free of other people. You've got forests to walk in. It's just a beautiful place. And the bonus now is the uh, it's actually quite a low cost of living, although prices have risen quite a lot in the last few, few years. Now the secret's mm. out. <laughs> and then you've got the bonus of um, no tax on holding 
Bitcoin. Mm. Well, so let's go backwards a little bit. Can you tell my audience like what your background is and you know how you got into Bitcoin and all the stuff that you do now? Oh well, I mean, I my background is I'm a Londoner. I was born to mm. hardworking, working class Nigerian parents. I was actually mm. conceived in Nigeria, born <laughs> in in the UK. So. I sort of made it, my mother made it to Heathrow Airport and I sort of combat rolled down the stairs into London. And I grew up most of my life there. But from a very young age, I became very interested in technology. In fact, even in secondary school, I was writing neural networks. And so when I got to university, I studied computer science and cognitive science. And I still retain a, a great interest in, in artificial intelligence and the whole mm. sector. And at university, I discovered not just my interest in computing, but in entrepreneurialism. I started up some companies in university as well. And then I went to work in the European and UK-based dot-com space for many years. I was involved in some of the early dot-com successes in the UK, dot-com 1.0, dot-com 2, web 2.0 as well, working on massively multiplayer virtual worlds with... Uh, 30 million users helping conceive and architect them until I, I decided to strike out myself because I was in these companies. I was CTO, chief application architect, etc. I wanted to strike out myself as a, to become a, a CEO, a head of my own company, a startup. So my first company did quite well. I sold the company, the IP, to a competitor, competitor in the UK, in Europe, in US, sorry. Got there in the end. Um, the second company, I decided to try and get into hardware, which was a big, mm. big mistake. But it's also <laughs> because, you know, my whole background was software. But it was also a great learning experience. And it was where I eventually bumped into my future co-founder for CoinFloor. And so at the end of that, or during that period, in the middle of running this sort of hardware company, I think it was 20, no, I know it was 2011. Uh, some friends of mine informed me about this thing called Bitcoin. And the reason why is because I know I'm very much into technology. I'm a card-carrying geek. But also they knew I was very much into discussing the iniquities in the world, the, the lack of meritocracy in the world. And it was a big challenge for me because I felt that it meant the world was losing out because what we needed to have is the best people working in any given role. And that would lead to the best outcomes for the world. And so anything that prevents the best people working in the best roles that they're best suited to was a net negative for the world. And so when I came across Bitcoin, I felt that this was, and people pointed it my way because they thought this would be right up OB street. I saw this you the first time you've got this meritocratic money. It doesn't care anything about you, just the color of your Bitcoin. It's it's freedom money, effectively. And even then, I had a, an understanding that many of the inequities in the world were to do with the inequities in the monetary system. Hmm. So I found it very interesting. Technically, I found it very interesting. I loved the game theory. I, I looked at it for a long time. But partly because I was focused on my current business, and I just, life, and partly because I didn't quite believe, I was maybe cynical that 
the governments wouldn't just stop it or so on. I made a small investment and then I just moved on. Two years later, someone who'd worked for me, who went on to do a startup that I angel invested in, which didn't succeed, but I was impressed with his sort of like entrepreneurial spirit, came to me and suggested that we work together on a Bitcoin exchange. And I was like, this was now 2013. And mm. so I looked back at Bitcoin and not only had it not failed, but it thrived. It went from when I looked at it to the time, about you know, $100 or so per Bitcoin. It was now at the several hundred dollars. And so I thought, okay, this is incredible, the interesting technology, really interesting game theoretic concepts behind it, and it has staying power. And this was at the time when Mount Gox was sort of imploding as well, or exploding. Mm. Um, you know, thought, here's an opportunity to roll out a very simple idea let's do something like Mount Gox, but in the UK where there wasn't really a player there and aim to be transparent and just just aim to do it really well and we launched we launched um coinflow and so that was the mm -hmm. beginning of my journey and then and, and that phase the coinflow phase lasted eight years wow all right so you've done quite a lot but let's move back a little bit and your first company because you you were obviously pretty successful as a coder you know working for different companies and this is a question that I like to ask entrepreneurs. What made you like go strike out on your own? Isn't it like very comfortable to work for another company, get a paycheck? Like what craziness do you have that you decided to go and try to start your own company? It was comfortably uncomfortable, I think is a good way of putting it. Ever since I was in university, I had this entrepreneurial flair. So I worked on the first ever website for the BBC. I worked on many projects, and while I was in university, and that was the mid-90s, by the way, mm -hmm. I would be walking into class with a mobile phone, which was like, you know, only business people had mobile phones at that time. <laughs> but I was at mobile phones doing these meetings. So it's clear I had this desire to, to strike out in business. But maybe uh, coming from a Nigerian family, working class, wanting to make sure that I could, you know, provide a good income for extended family etc um, when it came time to graduate i took a safer path which was still involved with startups but not running one myself but working for other people and as a cto um, and building up a career as a well initially as a developer then a head of development chief application architect and cto for many many years of various large companies and then what happens is they keep you in this sort of comfortable cage where they constantly up your salary give you more benefits and so on so that it comes harder and harder to sort of give it up and leave it and mm. that would have probably actually continued forever mm. if not one day i suddenly received the news that my older brother suddenly passed away oh. he was in his early 40s really talk too much about this but this is but mm -hmm. he was in his early 40s he was incredibly healthy, you know, used to run to work and back. He was living by himself in his house and just, he was, uh, the post-mortem suggested that he was basically eating and maybe the food went down his throat the wrong way and that caused him to die, basically, because he couldn't breathe and there was no one there to just hit him on the back and cause the food to come out. And 
it made me think about lots of things. It made me think about maybe I should get into a relationship, <laughs> you know, mm. and uh, the importance of helping each other. Um, but it also made me, it was devastating for the family at the time. And it also made me think that you never know when life can sort of throw a curveball at you. And mm. so you, you just never know. Um, so all this time I've wanted to set up my own business, but I was sort of in this gilded cage of like the bonus and so on. And mm. the fear that if I start the process of being an entrepreneur, all of these benefits of life that I have would disappear. And I, I may have to start from scratch and go back to a much more basic quality of life. And, but when I saw this happen, I decided that, you know, you've got to stop um, delaying and you should, you should do what you really truly in your heart want to do. And so I decided to pick up what I had been doing in university, but paused, pick up my entrepreneurial hat again and go. And I mean, as you can imagine, all of my fears were completely wrong and everything in the business worked perfectly well and there were no issues at all. <laughs> Not. <laughs> no, it was, I say my fears were exactly correct. In fact, it was much worse. I went from, you know, having a, a house and apartments in London and two cars and a motorbike and lots of holidaying and big parties with friends and role model for, for hyper-consumerism to slowly over a period of years as you run these businesses you become you start to cut off things because you then need to pay for things selling until at one point i literally had i had no property i had to sell everything i was in debt i was even at one point living in the child room of my younger brother which was peak you know like uh -huh. right down at the bottom of things just to keep my costs as low as possible hmm. but the good thing is it taught me a few things what i realized was even though i was living a much more humble life i also was much happier in one sense because one i was doing what i wanted to do and i was passionate about what i was doing and two i'd learned the mindset of minimalism of understanding what really is valuable no longer being uh, luckily escaping the noose of like consumerism all of these were the side benefits of taking this apart and then there was a a wealth of knowledge that i learned in parallel as well that when it came to coin floor i was able to employ from all of this past all this past experiences to help that succeed and now with my current stuff i work on I've taken what I've learned from CoinFloor as well on top of that to even improve even further. Mm. Well, so you decided to go and be an entrepreneur and it's obviously taught you a lot of lessons uh, <laughs> with regard to like resilience and mm. minimalism and things like that. Like yours is not the typical story because the people that do you know, have the jobs that you've had, they typically stay there. And it almost took like an act of God to get you out almost. It, it um, did. It was a bit. Like, Sorry, go on. You know, well, I mean, it's crazy. Like, how do you sort of like pitch this to 
other people that are thinking about doing something similar? Like, what do you say? Like, because in a sense, you've learned a lot of lessons, but they've come at some cost. If people are thinking about being an entrepreneur, starting their own Bitcoin company or something, what's your pitch? What's your advice? Well, first of all, I mean, there's two forms of my advice. Mm -hmm. I mean, one is just pragmatically, it's not for everyone. So you have to learn to know yourself, know your, your drivers. If this is this aching need to do something yourself, you'll feel it deep inside. You'll, you'll be in the office and you'll not be comfortable. And the second thing I say, if you know that you, that entre the, the path of the entrepreneur is for you, then you should definitely go for it. But what I say, and, and I often give, or I have often given speeches to students or universities, graduates about this in the past, is the concept of being anti-fragile. And I explain mm -hmm. that anti, being anti-fragile is, you have to first understand what is the word fragile. And that means if you're attacked or damaged, you get weaker and you, you fail. And a lot of people confuse the opposite of fragile as being tough or sturdy. But that's not the opposite because if you're tough or sturdy, that means if you're attacked or damaged, you stay the same. You don't get worse, but you don't get better. Um, anti-fragility is the process of when you're attacked or damaged, you get you fall down, you get back up, you dust yourself off, you learn your lessons and you improve and you keep going again. And then you're attacked again, you learn the lessons, improve and improve and improve. So you fall down and dust yourself up and repeat all the way until you succeed. That's anti-fragility. And you have to build that mindset of not being afraid to fail, which is what happened to me. I was afraid to lose everything. And so all of these accoutrements of life, and that's what prevented me. And it took a massive shock of my um, brother passing away to, to prevent that. So you have to not be afraid to, uh, to fail. You have to not be afraid to fall down. But no matter what happens, as long as you just get back up, dust yourself off and keep going and rinse and repeat, you will eventually succeed. So that's, if I was going to advise someone, would be to be anti-fragile. And I also mm. often talk about, for me, I have a passion on around Bitcoin. And mm. I like Bitcoin a lot because it, for me, embodies many of the things I've lived my own life by. It's the world's first anti-fragile money. I, when it's attacked, when it's damaged, it dusts itself off, gets back up, and becomes stronger than ever before. So it's a money that fulfills and matches my own sort of ethos that I've, I've learned through through this life as, a, as an entrepreneur. Mm. Well, so it's interesting because I think the way you're putting it is you were very fragile working for a company, but like starting your own business and doing all of this and maybe having some of these habits that you have now where you're very minimalist and you don't really need that much or depend on very much. It's made you more anti-fragile. Oh, it's transformed me. So instead of me getting my strength and confidence and um, resilience through external things around me, you know, protecting me, <coughs> I've now got it from within. <coughs> Sorry. Um, I've now got it from within. It's the difference between, if we take the movie, 
if you think about the prototypical movie and you've got one guy with like, you know, 50 guards around him, generally the bad guy with the sunglasses and 50 guards, 50 martial arts um, artists around him, protecting him. And then you've got another guy who has trained himself to be this incredible martial arts master. And so one, the protection is this wall around him and the other one is he is his own protection. And Mm. the process of becoming an entrepreneur transforms you from the first person to the second person. And if you've watched any movie like that, you know which one wins ultimately. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, having your own skills tends to be much better. All right, so you've gone on this journey and you did CoinFloor very early in the UK. What was it like when you started that company? Because I think you mentioned that Mt. Gox was blowing up right around then and Obviously, it was a kind of a volatile time. You know, the question of all coins was a little bit more nascent than it is now. Mm. What was that like? So at the time, there, this was in the shadow of Mt. Gox. So there was low trust in exchanges. And we wanted to, and others as well, wanted to, were worried about what this would do to the, the nascent industry. And so... We wanted to be very, very transparent because the problem with Mt. Gox was a lack of transparency on behalf of the custodians of customers' Bitcoin. So not for the customers themselves, but for the custodians. Because uh, if we're going to be looking after your money and you don't know us and we're complete strangers to you, then what can we do to allay your fears? And so the, the, the solution that was that hit upon by the industry was one, to try to be more transparent, and two, to be regulated, to become regulated and fight for regulation. In retrospect, I think that was not necessarily, may not have been the right call, but that was the view at the time. So what did that mean? It meant that we applied to the UK regulators and other exchanges did similar things in other countries. We tried to space ourselves in the city of London. We did everything else, to everything possible to be seen as some uh, reliable custodian. We also implemented something called cryptographic proof of reserves. And this was a a cryptographic protocol or a protocol that uses some cryptography that was actually suggested by, I believe it was uh, um, Greg Maxwell at the time. And a number of exchanges actually saw this and decided to make a commitment to implement it. We were one. And in fact, there was a joint commitment made by Coinbase, Bitstamp, Blockchain.info, now Blockchain.com, BTC China, and Kraken, I believe, as well, where they all committed to implementing um, proof of reserves. We were the only exchange that actually kept that up from the point of that commitment, which was, I think, a month after launch, to the point that we sold the company at the end, that I sold the company at the end of last year, we performed monthly proof of solvency audits without exception every month. I think Kraken did one or two at the beginning, and I think more recently in the last year they've restarted it. But the other exchanges, I don't believe, even did one proof of solvency report. Now, I can leave it as an exercise to you to figure out why they didn't decide they wanted to do a proof of solvency report. 
but it was something that we always lobbied for. And it was just part of our character that we tried to buck the trend and just focus on our primary objective is what was best for our customers and our belief that that would ultimately be best for us in the long term, even if in the short term, it may not be so obvious in the long term was best for us if we focus on what was best for our customers. So even before the term low time preference, we had that. But the culture, so, uh, but then beyond that, in the, at least in the UK space I can speak to, this was the time where we were at, we were, we were going from the ignore you to the laugh you phase. So I have a pinned tweet at the top of my, my Twitter, which was 2008, i.e. when the white paper came out, to 2013, by my estimation. Bitcoin was basically largely ignored. 2013, Mount Gox, people started to notice it at that sort of time. So it's 2013 to 2018, but we we entered the bear market as well, pretty much soon after that. The first long bear market, and then we came out. So that period, that next five-year period, which was 2013 to 2018, and that's the period where, you know, more than half of the life of the company the first five years to um, Bitcoin was basically laughed at. So this first, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And so that first four or five years, we were basically laughed at. We would talk to people in the city of London, in the hallowed halls of the city of London, and they would humor us, but it was just considered a sort of interesting sideshow. Maybe this blockchain thing is useful but actually Bitcoin wasn't useful. And it was challenging getting banking. I remember that we talked to over 200 banks in the UK and Europe for getting banking. Mm-hmm. And we always tried to operate to the, literally the highest standards possible for the banks. But it was just very, very, very tough getting banking then. It's still tough now, but it's orders of magnitude easier now than it was then. And yeah, people would f- sometimes find it interesting, but generally most people would just laugh at you and say, and, and friends and family would just look at you with pity. That was the atmosphere <laughs> then. <laughs> yeah. Wow, crazy. And you went through all of that and, you know, obviously got the exchange up and running. And, you know, you, you did, you know, pretty well for there for a while. What was the process of exiting that like? You know, you obviously sold the company. You know, I imagine if you're an entrepreneur, that's got to be at least one of the considerations is what's your exit look like? And like for yourself, like, was this what you envisioned or is it, was it like something that you didn't expect and it just sort of was an opportunity that you took advantage of? I think, yeah, it's interesting. I think the process of selling actually started probably three or so years later, earlier. So mm. we were growing. We at some point had you know, 70 or so percent market share of the UK. And then I think there were some decisions that we decided to make. So, for example, we were had to make a choice. Do we focus more on consumers or more on institutional clients? On one hand, 
from a, I was on the in the camp of focusing on consumers on normal users. I'd always wanted to, in fact, expand and go global and look at offering services in in Africa at some point. In fact, the first sheets of paper on my first uh, notepad at CoinFloor, how Bitcoin could help Nigeria, and I sort of thought about that. But you know, that wasn't necessarily popular for other people and other investors who are more focused on the on the West, etc. Mm. And then my co-founder at the Times' um, interest was much more on high-end, sophisticated products, futures, derivatives, and so on and so forth. So initially, we were still all quite aligned, but that started becoming a point of, of friction. We tried two experiments. One was the development of a peer-to-peer offering to rival something like local Bitcoins that we offered alongside the main exchange. And that was called CoinFlow Markets. And that was probably my, my baby. And then the other was the idea of a physically delivered futures exchange, which mm. was still developed. I oversaw the development of that because I was both the CEO and CTO of the company at the time. Mm. And we figured out how to do it. It was the world's first physically delivered futures, Bitcoin futures exchange. But in terms of the person who was passionate for it, it was definitely my co-founder. So myself and the engineers of the team figured out how to do it, but he was the one who really wanted to do it and was the, like the, the product champion of it. And then they sort of both launched roughly the same time. Actually, no, the CoinFloor market launched earlier and was growing steadily and slow and steadily, So, uh, which for me was great. Was just, I, I prefer this sort of slow, steady, low-time preference approach, but it wasn't so exciting from an imp- an investor point of view and then this really exciting physically delivered futures the promise of huge amounts of trade volume that would dwarf whatever we've seen before and looking at the numbers of people like bitmex and so on was much more exciting to investors a time came that we had to choose we didn't have the bandwidth to do both and we eventually as an as a organization decided to go with the physically delivered institutional um, route and so that was that we mothballed coin markets we literally had people begging us not to do it it was because they were starting to find it to be incredibly profitable for them like brokers individual brokers they were finding it it was a really really strong offering compared to the other offerings they had in the uk market like local bitcoins and so on and yeah they were growing their organizations on the back of this but we mothballed it and we focused 100 percent on the futures offering so that was we worked really hard on it and finally rolled it out we poured a lot of our revenue into it it took up a lot of our bandwidth and we weren't able to focus on our core business as well. So we were starting to lose market share to the coin bases and so on. So then we asked, so then we viewed again and again, there was another discussion and it was decided as a organization that we would defocus from them, from the core business and to put all our efforts into this new future business. Cause there was strong conviction that this was going to, blow away everything else finally launched and 
it didn't do so well. I mean, the technology was incredible. <laughs> it worked really mm -hmm. well. And to this day, it has never had an issue. It was very reliable, amazing technology. But it didn't really do well from a traction at all perspective. And that could have been many reasons, but it, it, it wasn't a technology. But we now had a problem because we put all our eggs into one basket. We've lost a lot of market share. We had a funding shortfall. So we ultimately decided to split the company in two and to sell off the physically delivered futures offering. Mm -hmm. That product was called Coinfloor X EX. And the new company buyers wanted to take it. They were heavily interested in things like Bitcoin Cash, which previously, philosophically, we were very involved in the Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash wars. We were one of the few exchanges to not want to do the Segwit2x and publicly make a statement that even though everybody else is doing that, we're not going to do that. We're going to go with what the majority of users want, not what the majority of miners or other exchanges want. But internally, there was a definitely a conflict. There was a set of people in the organization who were very interested and aligned with the philosophy of Bitcoin Cash. And there was a set who were aligned with that of Bitcoin. And that also caused a lot of conflict within the organization. When we split the company in two, the people who were involved were, who were interested with the futures exchange were also happened to be the ones who were interested in Bitcoin Cash. Mm. So it was an opportunity for us to separate into an organization that was fully aligned with Bitcoin and, the, and the, an organization that was fully aligned with multiple cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin Cash and all this sort of stuff and futures and leverage and so on. And so we sold, the, but the only stipulation, because we knew that the buyers would not, by the way, this is the first time I've talked about this publicly, but, no, okay. uh, but um, <laughs> Appreciate we, that. we knew the buyers would not, we didn't personally want to be associated with an organization that was related to Bitcoin Cash. Um, we insisted that the name was changed, uh, so it couldn't have coin, it couldn't be Coinflow X or have Coinflow in the name. So the name was kept secret until we sold, and then they renamed to Coin from Coinflow X to Coinflex, mm. and they became Coinflex, and they went on and, and did their thing. And you know, even though we have very different philosophical objectives and approaches. There were still a lot of people who were ex-employees, and so I wished them well, as long as it wasn't to the detriment of, obviously, other people. And we then started our process to rapidly become more aligned with our philosophy, the remaining part of the organization. So very soon after that, we resisted adding coins, but we did have a theory for a few months. Mm. And we'd always had Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Swap. But we, we delisted both of those mm. very soon after that to go back to being a Bitcoin-only company in line with our philosophy. Mm. And however, we then, you know, entered another bear market. We, we spent a lot of time just reassessing, restructuring, getting back to profitability, which we did. So we got back to profitability, reassessed, and restructured. But... Also, as someone who's now Bitcoin, back to being able to be fully Bitcoin focused and seeing what was happening in the world of exchanges, 
it became clear to me that the path towards um, regulated exchanges has sort of taken the wrong uh, the wrong term may be a strong word but it, it definitely wasn't going in a direction that I felt comfortable with and I felt happy with and so through this point of restructuring and becoming profitable again and, and growing again etc I also realized that to realize the full vision of what I would want to contribute to the Bitcoin space, it couldn't be within a regulated exchange. And that realization came through really at the, probably the beginning of last year, so the beginning of 2021. We're now profitable again. We had plans of running our mobile app and so on, but I felt that we were highly limited because we, the objective of any Bitcoiner shouldn't be just to make money, but it should be actually the great object is to make Bitcoin into money. And mm. if you want to make Bitcoin into money, you need to have everybody everywhere being able to have the ability to hold Bitcoin. Not just a subset. Every, you cannot have hyper-Bitcoinization if you only have 30 or 40% of people on the planet holding Bitcoin. By defin almost definitionally, you cannot have hyper-Bitcoinization. So we needed, and you will not be able to get hyper-Bitcoinization if the majority of users are relying on who the only approach that they can feasibly do is to have be on an exchange. Because by definition, exchanges will exclude some significant percentage of people who try to apply for them, preventing hyper-Bitcoinization from happening. Not to mention or leaving you the ever present risk that you can lose access to your own Bitcoin. And so, mm. with that realization, I started looking at mechanisms from last year of how we can get people en masse off exchanges. I'd already been trying to educate our users to self custody, and I was mm. not having any joy. And so, I realized we had to find better ways to get people off exchanges. Mm. Well, so going back to this whole drama around selling your company and stuff, what was that like emotionally for you? What do you wish you had known during that process that maybe would have helped you get through it in a you know more anti-fragile manner, I guess? Well, selling the company? Mm -hmm. So we sort of sold the company twice or, or passed the mm -hmm. company. So we sold the the first time I sold the company or a subset of the company, the, the, the mm -hmm. futures part. And that was a painful process. It was painful negotiation. And, you know, it took a while to recover from that. The second time round, though, although it was a lot of effort, it was much easier because I'd mentally had become ready to sell. I had a thing that I was wanting to move on to and, and I was ready to sell. In terms of what could prepare me more for it, I think what prepared me for it were, uh, with all of these, and I think it's the case with everything in life, I think mm. I have a strong network of friends and I really am a believer in energy and positive energy. So again, I've spent a lot of time being able to pick up on people's energy. Now, when I mean energy, I don't know whether two people could, to each other, be positive in energy, but just 
not with me. So it's not really a question of objectively you give positive away a negative energy or positive energy. It's more that when I interact with this person, I go away feeling as good as I felt before or better on average. Mm. Not all the time, not that no one's like that, but on average. So, but people like that, who I end up feeling more positive by spending time with, and they also feel more positive by spending time with, I try to spend more time with them. And when you, that's valuable when you're in periods where you have challenges, um, because you can then lean on each other to help recharge you. You know, your circumstances are draining energy from you. And these, these people, these spirits, effectively their, their nature acts like a decentralized recharging network for you. And of course, it's quid pro quo when they have challenges. Um, if you're fulfilling that same purpose with them, then you have the same effect and of hopefully recharging them as well. If it's only a one-way thing, then it's not maintainable because one is just taking and one is just giving. So that's quite important for me. I also find things that give me peace or allow me to recharge. Again, it's different for different people. I like order and structure and simplicity. It clears my mind less to think about. It allows me to handle stress more. A really big thing for me, especially the first time I did a sale, I was in the UK. The weather wasn't great. The environment wasn't great. And then when I had to do the second sale of the entire company, and that was actually a, a two-part sale. I had to sell the UK business to an exchange that I felt fulfilled and matched the philosophy of of Bitcoin and of CoinFloor. Because we had a number of offers, but we chose Coin Corner because it was a great exchange with great people behind it and a very similar philosophy. And also, I had to sell our remaining stake in CoinFlex, which was a very different set of people I had to sell to, but we found those people and sold to them. Again, although that was stressful because I was effectively doing two sales in parallel, it was much easier because I had cultivated an incredible network of people around me to support me, mm. many of them Bitcoiners. And also, I was just in an environment which was just closer to what I felt was the environment that I should live. You know, nature, water, the feeling of surf in your face, um, the smell of, of mildew and trees if you walk through the forest. You know, there's something about these basic elements which affect us and, and strengthen us and make us, and make us better. My diet improved as well. I began intermittent fasting as well, which mm. really affected my diet and energy levels. I lost 10 kilograms. I don't know what that is in pounds. Um, but <laughs> About 22 pounds, yeah. yeah. But it's quite, yeah, it was 10 to 11 kilograms, which is quite significant. So all of these things happened and they helped. Um, the people around me give me their energy and the environment, the physical environment around me. Well, so it sounds like, you know, being an entrepreneur is a kind of crazy, heartbreaking, you know, like very rough and tumble kind of journey. But you're doing something new again. You're going <laughs> back to the entrepreneurial saddle. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and why you're doing it? Um, yeah. So, well, first of all, I would comment that 
it is a, a crazy rough and tumble, but it's also addictive. If you're wired this way, then no other way is possible. You just, you just can't possibly live another way. You can fool yourself for a while, but if you try to, you'll just be unhappy and you won't know why you're unhappy, but it's because you're not living your life the way that you are supposed to live it. I actually, after selling both the stake in CoinFlex and also CoinFloor, I, the same day I did that was also the day I was announced as a board member for B-Trust, which was a, mm. a trust set up by uh, initially with a donation from um, Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z for 500 BC, BTC for the objective of locating, educating, and remunerating talented engineers from uh, the global south, starting in Africa and India. And in fact, actually, just yesterday, we announced our first actual Africa open source cohort member, Vlad. So we're really, really happy about that. Um, we'll be hoping to get many more in Africa and then, then across the global south. But I wanted to take, and I had the, the fortunate position of being able to take maybe one, maybe two, let's see, X years off and just relax. I started in Mexico. I spent a month just traveling around by car and, and sometimes meeting Bitcoiners there. I then immediately went from Mexico all the way to the other side of the world to Indonesia, spent six weeks there flying across all of, um, I probably took a dozen flights across Indonesia and going to parts that people don't normally go to there. I learned to scuba dive and all these things. But I didn't really work out the way I planned because I was already, even in those places, even doing all these incredible things, was thinking about the challenges and the missing pieces in the Bitcoin open source ecosystem. I had already come across my soon-to-be co-founder in Hackers Congress the year before, in October 2021. And a thought was percolating in my mind around an opportunity to get the you know ninety percent of people plus who are holding money on exchanges to take their money off exchanges, and how that would resolve a lot of the concerns I'd had in the space. Mm-hmm. And so I agreed to do a talk at Bitcoin Miami 2022, and I thought, look, let me do this talk. At least I've communicated this incredible product to the world and then then i can carry on and chill for a bit and that will be the last talk i did unfortunately for me the response was incredible from that talk (laughs) and amongst other things alex gladstein insisted that i go to oslo to talk about this to some some people some human rights defenders activists and so on so I did say that I promised that this to myself that this would be the last talk I do for a while and I actually get some time to rest. But okay, I'll come along. And I every other day I thank Alex for insisting that I go. Because that hearing the stories of just human tragedy and human incredible human bravery and persistence from all over the world 
was it just inspired me to sort of try harder, work harder. I was then fortunate enough to have some intense time with many others. I think you know who as well mm-hmm. to talk to some of these people and hear their stories and hear their challenges and not just educate them about Bitcoin, but be educated about their challenges. And it was during that, uh, at the tail end of that process, that conversation occurred between Jeff Booth and Leopoldo Lopez, Roy Amabub, Ludmila Kozlovska, and myself, where we realized that there was a, a really interesting marriage here. On one hand, you've got these activists who care deeply about their people, sacrifice their life, even their freedom for their freedom, even their life for these people, for the people that who they are trying to support in their different jurisdictions and locations. They are incredibly gifted at um, organizing mass aid, mass education, mass peaceful process on the orders of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, sometimes of millions. And they also are starting to understand the need for a system like Bitcoin. And then we have this product that, that I'd been promoting, this open source protocol, this protocol for decentralized custody to go alongside the protocols of Lightning, which is decentralized payments, and obviously the base protocol, the, the, the base pillar, which is, which is Bitcoin, decentralized, censorship-resistant, store of value, and the core money. So this protocol is Fediment. And having run an exchange for eight years, and having tried for much that time to get people to self-custody, I realized that this was the best chance to take a step closer to the ideal of true um, self, um, per first-party self-custody and away from the complete opposite of that ideal, which is centralized, regulated custody. And so that offering combined with these people's ability to activate, these activists activate people at scale, could lead to a really, really interesting endeavor. And so once I, I actually made a commitment, as did many others, to keep working on this and not stop until everybody everywhere was free and would be able to have the same freedoms I have. It's not enough for just Bitcoin to be successful and for me to be free. Until everyone is free, none of us are free. And when I had that realization, I realized that Sorry, holiday over. I had to go back. <laughs> and so, first of January, I first of June, I got back, and just about six weeks later, I'd raised money from nine different um, Bitcoin only investors, formed a company, got banking for a Bitcoin company, hired the team. The whole team was on board with the mission already. The co-founders, and we launched. So. You've been working on this, I guess, for a while now, and now you've announced that you have the investors. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of you know, the Chaomian Cash system and what's, how would you describe it to everybody that's listening in? Yeah, I mean, it depends on your context and where you're coming from, but fundamentally, it's a way of communally custodying 
your Bitcoin. So, well, I would say the gold standard, the, actually the Bitcoin standard, the ideal best practice way of custodying your Bitcoin is to be your own bank, to do it all yourself. So let, know, learn all the elements and be able to do everything yourself without anyone, any help from anybody. And if you can do that, if you have the financial means, because it can cost money that in some parts of the world may be insignificant, in other parts of the world is significant. If you have the knowledge and skill set and, and ability, and depending on the technology you use, it can be medium to difficult. And also, if you have the mindset, you, you're not you're comfortable enough doing it as well, because a lot of people are just afraid of doing it. If you're at that point where you have all three of those, then you should definitely do that. Hmm. However, at this point in time, the majority of people for one of those three don't meet those three criteria. And so if they want to hold Bitcoin, they choose to hold it with the only other option that's widely available, which is with a regulated exchange. Now, first of all, there's a, there's a problem for two reasons. One, regulated exchanges, by definition, won't work in all jurisdictions. And there's some people they've necessarily, therefore, exclude. And we're talking about large percentages of the world's populations are, are excluded because of this. So they literally, if that large percentage is not comfortable with the free things or they cannot afford it or whatever it may be, and they're not they're excluded from exchanges, they have no choice. They're like just S out of luck, as it were. And then you have the people on exchanges who may want to self-custody but are not ready to do it. And if there was an option that was as easy to use as an exchange and they felt as comfortable with, but gave a better privacy, a better security trade-off than an exchange, then they would move to it. So, and that's what Fedimint is. It's this form of community custody. I would say instead of be your own bank, it's be your own community bank, where a community of people come together to custody their Bitcoin on behalf of the community. Now, structurally, there's a number of elements. One key element is the use of a federation. Conceptually, this is similar to Blockstream's liquid federations, where a group of people, we like to call them guardians, each run a, the protocol service, the Fedimint protocol service, and they form a, a, a multi-sig, uh, effectively, between them, each one holding one key, and it forms a multi-sig. Separately, we, so that provides you no single point of trust. The benefit you get from that, there's no single point of trust. The second part is the use of Chalmy and eCash. This was something that David Chalm, who was referenced by Satoshi Nakamoto in his white paper, um, wrote about originally, I believe it was 1983. So this is a 40-year-old protocol, i.e. It's, it's very, very mature. And this is a form of blinded protocol where you, in exchange for some cash, at that time it was cash in a bank, and you would receive a, a series of these digital IOUs. But these IOUs can be exchanged for cash, or cash can be exchanged for these IOUs, or an IOU could be exchanged for another IOU um, in a blinded manner where the operator of the bank would have no way of knowing who they are dealing with. There's many analogies. The one I like is the you can imagine you have a, a fairground 
and or a theme park and the the theme park uses its own tokens that represent uh, money these are the ious and at the entrance of the theme park you have a cashier you give them some cash and they give you back these iou tokens let's say your family you and your wife and 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 children you get into the theme park then you take those tokens and you give some to your wife some to your children and then they all run off i'm, I'm sure they're very well behaved they won't do that but just imagine <laughs> uh, and they would take these and run off and 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 play and then maybe one of your kids runs out of tokens or meets a friend who's run out of tokens they can give you their, their token to their friend and so on so it could be passed around within the confines of the fairground as a bearer, bearer instrument the operator of the cashier's desk has no way of knowing after that they've issued the tokens how it's being used and how it's being moved around there's a technical detail in the implementation reality but Let's not go into that now to not confuse the analogy. Now, mm -hmm. the blinding mechanism, you can think of as a process of someone going to the cashier's desk and instead of having a glass window, paints over it in black. So the cashier can no longer see out anymore. All they can see is people shoving money under the, through the hole for, uh, in the cashier's, uh, in the kiosk. And then they're sending up IOUs or they're passing in IOUs and getting back cash. Or they're passing IOUs with a request to get different IOUs back and then they get, they get back different IOUs. Now, you can obviously see um, that conceptually now the cashier has no way of knowing how many people even are in the theme park, who the people are in the theme park, what they're doing in the theme park. In fact, in theory, you have theoretically perfect, cryptographically perfect privacy with a chairman. With a massive trade-off, there's one cashier holding all the actual cash. What federated chairman mints does is, and that was the one challenge with chairman mints: theoretically cryptographically perfect privacy, but with this big trade-off on centralization. The addition of the concept of federations added to it allows you to federate that mint the, the mint is the is the, the kiosk which creates the ios and then destroys them if they're returned and so that mint now is not one mint but it's multiple mints working in coordination or it's actually still one mint but but managed by multiple people and at least for example if it's say five three of them need to sign off on any new minting and three of them need to sign off on any uh, minting destruction or any conversion. And in so doing, as long as the majority of mint operators, or we call them guardians, are honest, then your cash will be okay. So you've effectively federated the, the trust and therefore reduced the risk of one bad actor, even two bad actors in that scenario causing an issue. Hmm. Well, so it's really a privacy, you know, layer, I guess, on top of Bitcoin, something like that. Would that be a good way to describe it? This, that's only one very, one aspect of it. Mm -hmm. What we see, we see it as um, three different things. It's mm -hmm. a, and privacy is, is just by default. It's just like lightning also provides privacy. But the actual key, and that's really the only way you get privacy at mm -hmm. global scale, 
if it's just something that just happens without you having to do anything. Because if you have to take any action for it, then people just won't. So that's not really the core. It is a core feature, but it's three things. One is it provides custody. It allows you to hold a mechanism to custody Bitcoin out with an exchange, Hmm. which is one big win already. And then takes you towards a step if you can continue to progress along that towards full self-sovereignty at some point. If you can build, have the resources and skill set eventually in time to do it. The second is it's actually, and there's another key part of the way it works with the Lightning Network. It actually works incredibly well with the Lightning Network to the point where it effectively can make the Lightning Network far more far more useful and also the lightning network can make fediments as a set of separate islands as it were far more connected and far more useful as well so they, they work really symbiotically with each other but mm. in this context of fediment it can support and improve the the economics of running a lightning being a lightning service provider for example you get far lower if you connect to a fediment federation you get far far more efficient utilization of capital. You need to lock up far less to service more people, for example. Hmm. They're also, as a part to connect to, they're going to be more reliable because your downtime is going to be lower as opposed to individuals who might be turning on and off their machines. Here, as long as the majority of Fediment Guardians are online, you have a one contiguous experience, meaning that your partners are more reliable. It makes it more efficient for routing purposes and so on. So there's many benefits to leading to a healthier lightning network if widespread user federations. And then the final thing is, is a scaling solution as well. Because what you do is effectively you have layer one, which is Bitcoin, then you get layer two, which is lightning. But then with this sort of constellation of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of federations, each one of those has a full virtual machine um, ex- execution environment effectively. And so they can allow you to, they're effectively a layer three because transactions within inside a federation are not only off chain, but they're also off network as well. So they don't mm. have to touch the network at all. And also it scales with the number of federations because the transaction volume in one federation doesn't affect the transaction volume capacity in another federation. So as more federations are added, the total capacity of you end up with a multitude of decentralized um, layer threes. And it's not just scaling from a performance point of view, it's scaling from a functionality point of view. Because of the fact that there are four EVMs, there was one project in Austin recently where one of my co-founders, Justin Moon, and his team built a simplicity um, module to be added to their federation, which allowed them to run simplicity code on it and any functionality could be added that the system is going to be designed so that the module functionality anyone can add a federation and each each anyone can add a module with any given functionality they can imagine obviously they don't want to do something that's too complete you know you don't want to start doing protein folding but because it's not doesn't have any relation to money but <laughs> you know there's no reason why it technically couldn't run there's no limitations Mm. And you as an individual federation and a Fediment community could decide, 
I would like these extra modules of functionality added to my federation because they add value to me. So it's a properly decentralized with privacy baked in a standard off-chain as standard scaling system, but that works hand in hand seamlessly with the Lightning Network to connect it all together as a settlement layer between federations or between individuals who are running their own Lightning node or so on. From a user point of view of a user on either side, it will be transparent to whoever you're paying to, someone who's a member of a federation or an individual with their own wallet. So that's what it is. It would basically immediately make obsolete in combination with Bitcoin as the base, Lightning as the settlement and payment layer, and federations. Obsolete any other role model, use case on any other blockchain. Unless mm. you just want to scam people, of course, because that's, that's, that's always a, <laughs> a forever use case. Yeah, that is a common thing. All right. That hour went by so fast and I'm sure we could talk way, way more. But where can people find you? Where can people contact you? So for they can contact me in two places. One on Twitter, which is I'm Obi on Twitter, OBI, which just shows my age. And <laughs> and two, they can to find out more about our project, they should see Feddy, which is Feddy.xyz. F-E-D-I dot X-Y-Z. And that's the company that we've just launched a few days ago. And from there, you can find information as well about Feddy Mint, which is the core protocol that Feddy, which is this incredibly simple app, which is, think of it like a, a wallet for Feddy Mint protocol users. But to find out about Feddy Mint, go to feddymint.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And it's been an enlightening conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. Great talking to you. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Obi can be found at at Obi on Twitter and Fetty.xyz. Until next time, Fiat Linda Est.